I mean, this is a new series today. We're starting. This is our Easter series, but we're actually picking back up where we left off. Last summer, we went through the Gospel of John. We went through it chapter by chapter. And so we, sp- we stopped at John 17. Today, we're picking up back into John 18. And so as we start out today, jumping back into the Gospel of John, I'm going to do a little bit of review with you so that if you uh, if, even if you heard all those messages last summer, you might have forgotten a little bit of where we left off. Uh, and uh, However, this last series, we looked at two of John's letters in 2 John and 3 John, so we are somewhat familiar with his writing, with his style, um, with where John is coming from, because the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John also wrote those letters, right, as well as Revelation. But as we look at the Gospel of John, there's some very unique things about this Gospel. We have Four Gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and a Gospel literally is a story of Jesus' life. And as we look at that, we see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in how they're written and a lot of things that they include, but John is very different. There's some very interesting things about John and the way that he writes in his Gospel. First off, in in the Gospel of John, he identifies himself as, as the author, and, and we see a very personal and emotional connection from G- to Jesus. Again, this is the disciple John that wrote this. He, he was with him throughout his entire public ministry. He was part of Jesus' inner three disciples. Um, he saw and experienced things with Jesus that others didn't. And we get to see the, the kind of behind-the-scenes story from John about Jesus. We get this, this very personal perspective. One of the interesting things about the Gospel of John is that John never names himself, though, when he does write it from the first-person perspective, but he never names himself. And there's a few different places in the Gospel where he needs to to name him as being there, right? but he never says me or I, and he never uses his name. He, He describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. And it's very interesting to see when that pops up. It pops up in a couple different places throughout the Gospel, the most common where we see it over and over again, is in these concluding chapters, the ones we're going to cover over the next uh, three or so weeks. The first time he ever addresses himself is in John chapter 13. Right? John 13 is, is the scene of the Last Supper. It's where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and, and John addresses himself in that chapter as the disciple Jesus loved, and then not again until these concluding chapters at the cross. Also, we look back at John 13. This is a very important chapter of the Gospel of John because it is the last uh, event of the Gospel narrative in John 13 before, um, before we go into this uh, four chapter, chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 kind of break in the story where literally all four of those chapters, and that's where we ended last summer, all four of those chapters are all red letters. It's Jesus' teaching. He's teaching different parables and teachings, the, the kind of the last minute teachings before Jesus gets arrested and goes to the cross. And, and this whole section right, was we studied those four chapters last summer. We ended with a series called The Words Are Red because they're all red. It's all Jesus is speaking. Right? And we ended that with John 17, which is Jesus' Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now today, we pick up in John 18. And this is where the narrative picks back up, and the story starts to move forward again. 
Now, before we do that, I just want to remind you a couple other things about the Gospel of John. One is it's somewhat shocking how little content is actually in the Gospel of John. There are only seven miracles in the entire Gospel until we get to the resurrection, right, which we'll see. So we already covered those seven miracles. There are also, as we've already sang about in some of our worship songs today, in the intro video we saw, that, that there are seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. Now, this is alluding, this, this phrase, I am, again, goes back to, uh, to the story of Moses in the Old Testament and Exodus when, when God uh, appears in the burning bush and talks to Moses about taking the Israelites out of Egypt. And, and, and there, right, God identifies himself there as I am. And Jesus uses the same term to, uh, to identify himself throughout the Gospel of John. And, and again, we will see that all come to, to culmination today in John 18. So his time has come, and that, that is, again, the, the title of this series, because throughout the gospel, there have been many times throughout the gospel of John where, where Jesus gets himself in, in a predicament, right, where the Pharisees are closing in on him. They've already decided they're going to kill him, they're going to arrest him, all those things, and times when it seems like they're going to get him, and then Jesus slips out, right, he gets away, or whatever it would be, and, and yet the the phrase that we see throughout the gospel is Jesus says, because my time has not yet come. And now we get to John 18. And spoiler alert, but Jesus gets arrested in John 18. And now his time is here. And again, we're going to see that of how he, how he, he submits right, to being arrested because now his time has come. We, we see John refer back to or fulfill earlier parts of the gospel several times in this chapter. And because we celebrate Easter every year, it's a very familiar story. But yet, after studying through the entire gospel leading up to this, right, we will see the next level of what John is establishing here in his writing. Because John 18 is the literary climax of the gospel. Meaning it was all building up to this point. And, and this, again, is the climax of his writing. Again, I highly suggest, uh, if you haven't done so, to go back and review the rest of the gospel, to read it going up to this point. Um, and to, but today, again, we are jumping into John 18. I've already mentioned, again, this is our Easter series. And, and, and again, the Easter challenge for us is to uh, to be praying as a church, right? To be inviting others to, to find Jesus, to celebrate Jesus on this Easter uh, time this year. So as we do that, enough intro, are we ready to jump into the text? If you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 18. We are going to start uh, with the first 11 verses. And if you have your own Bible with you, hopefully you can open with me. If you don't, there are Bibles provided for you in the seats that you're welcome to use, and you'll find the page number there. Uh, on, on, on the screen of where you can find this passage in those Bibles. So we're going uh, to cover, look at the entire chapter here today, but we're going to start here with the first 11 verses. So John 18, starting at verse 1. It says, After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and the Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers, and temple guards to accompany him. 
Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, and he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? Again, as we pause here after this, these first 11 verses, we, we see here again that, that his time has come. Right? We see here how Jesus is still in complete control of the situation. Right? As they show up into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him, Again, notice this, this title in your Bible. If your Bible has the titles over the sections, right, the title of this section is The Arrest of Jesus. And yet here he doesn't actually get arrested until verse 12. Because Jesus, again, is 100% in control of what's happening here. He is submitting to the authorities that, that God has put in it at this time. Right? And, and as we see this, right, we, we also see this theme that has run through the entire gospel. John starts and, and, and gives us this theme of Jesus being the light of the world. Right? That, that his light comes with him and he's entered into the darkness of the world right, to shine his light. And, and yet, again, it is not a coincidence that this theme comes to full fruition in this scene. Because John's very specific that they came to arrest Jesus in the dark of the night. Again, as evil advances its plan to come and arrest the light of the world. And you notice also that John points out that they come in verse 3 with blazing torches and lanterns. Again, they brought a fake source of light to arrest the light of the world. Again, John lays it on very thick here, this illustration, right, of the darkness that is involved in this scene. We also see three different times in the verses we read where Jesus uses the phrase, I am. And if you notice in your Bible, I am is, are both capitalized. Okay, the reason why they're capitalized is because it's a noun. It's a name. And again, John draws this out even in the right, right? When he says the first time Jesus says it and claims that of himself, what happens? Everybody falls back because there is power in that name. And by Jesus using that title, right, he is declaring his full divine nature as Messiah. And that power of that name just just goes out, and again, this, this is the same distinction we saw earlier in the gospel, and the same title that starts in Exodus 3.14 in the burning bush with Moses. 
He is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Right, again, Jesus gives his true identity. Notice he, he says, I am. He says it three times right, to, to reiterate to them, this is who I am. And, and yet they keep saying, we are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Notice again, they bring his earthly identity, his human title. And Jesus addresses and says, I am. He's claiming his 100% divine identity. Right, and which ends up being the claim that Caiaphas sees as blasphemous to Jesus later in the text. That he is claiming to be divine. Claiming to be the Messiah, the son of the living God. Something that Caiaphas and all of the other religious leaders and the, the, everyone else does not believe. And yet we also see here where Peter acts like Peter always acts. Right here in the, in the midst of the garden, as they show up and Jesus is submitting to being arrested, um, Peter steps up and acts. He pulls out his sword, right, and he fights. And he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And, and, and notice Jesus steps in. Right? And, and he, he calls out Peter and, and tells him to, to knock it off. Again, Jesus is like, Peter, I know what I'm doing. Right? This is not your time to jump in. Now, now, this, like I said, is the way that Peter acts all the time, because this is Peter's personality. Peter is an act now, think later type of person. Right? In fact, you know, Peter is the kind of person that should, needs the sign. Think, do it right the first time, plan ahead. Right? It doesn't fit on the sign. And this, this, is, this is Peter's personality. Right, and, and, and he, as, he, as he jumps into this, right, he's literally trying to stop the chain of events that Jesus has set up. Right, and Jesus has orchestrated this set of events to make sure right, that what happens is what Jesus wants to happen. And also to make sure that no disciple is excluded by Jesus. That Jesus himself gets arrested. Right, Jesus is yet already showing grace to these disciples and even to Peter in this moment. And he's saying, Peter, you don't know what you're messing with. Let me do what I need to do. Right, and yet we see that pointed out in the text, right, that no, no disciple is excluded by Jesus. That We see in verses 8 and 9 where, where Jesus addresses them and he says, No, I told you that I am he, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. And he did this to fulfill his own statement, I did not lose a single one of those you've given me. Even in this moment, even in the garden as he's being arrested, Jesus is already showing grace. He's already living out the power of the gospel even as he's being arrested. Even as, as evil is advancing, Jesus is already at work in the midst of the gospel message. And then we see this story continue, and we're going to continue to read here in verses 12 through 27, where it says, So the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. 
First, they took him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. And Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, it's better that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. We know who the other disciple was, don't we? He doesn't name himself. Peter had to stay outside the gate, and then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, you're not one of that man's disciples, are you? And no, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire, and they stood around it warming themselves, and Peter stood with them warming himself. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what they had been teaching them. Jesus replied, everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. So why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. And then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest, he demanded? And Jesus replied, if I said something wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? And then Annas bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it, saying, no, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, but didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately the rooster crowed. Again, here we see this next chain of events happen. And here the downfall of Peter is intermingled with the, the, the beginning of the trial before Caiaphas and the other Jewish leaders for Jesus. Again, we see here in verse 10 how Peter was standing up for Jesus. He was literally fighting for him and then and then here in verse 17, he, he even denies being a disciple of Jesus. We see a very quick turn out of Peter. In fact, he uses the exact phrase that Jesus used to identify himself as Peter says, I am not. As he lies about being a disciple. And then we see this verse in 18, and it's, it's a verse that, that might be easy to just skip over, but yet, yet John points out this very specific detail in verse 18. When he says, because it was cold, the household servants and the guards made a charcoal fire, and they stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Now again, as we as we read the, the, the story and think, like, why does John point out this detail, right, about a charcoal fire and about the cold of the night? Because, again, John is, is showing in this literary climax, right, of, of the downfall of Peter, of how he's taking steps away from Jesus. And the reality is that Peter is moving further and further away from the light of the world and closer and closer with those who have joined forces with the powers of darkness. Again, one of the significant things about a coal fire is that there's not flames. 
right? It, it glows, but it, it doesn't produce a lot of light. Right? And we see here as, as Peter clings to the warmth and the false light that's being created by the same people that has arrested Jesus. And we see how Peter, again, not just through his denials, but also through his, his physical actions, right, is moving further and further away from Jesus. Again, John does the same thing with Judas in chapter 13 at the scene of, of the Last Supper. Again, just in that text, back in John 13, we see that it says that Judas left at once out into the night. Again, the same illustration, right? As these disciples are running out into the darkness while the light of the world is heading towards the cross. And we see both men, Judas and Peter, moving closer to the darkness of the world and further and further away from Jesus. But as we see again, we already know of Judas' demise that, that, that we see play out here at the beginning of the chapter, right, as he leads them to Jesus and finishes his betrayal. Now we see Peter going down a very same road. Different. Everybody's journey looks a little different, doesn't it? But, but sometimes they're very similar. And, and we realize with that, that that Peter and Judas both move away from the light of the world towards the power of darkness. And again, John lays it on very thick here. And, and as we see him, him continuing to not just build the case of, of Jesus and the light of the world and the sacrifice that he's making and, and how he's orchestrating these actions to end up at the cross, but yet we also see as he highlights both of these men that are moving away from Jesus. Light and dark. Good and evil. Right? These are themes that, that we know are still very rampant in our world today. It's, it's at the center of every good story, every good movie, right? Is, is the, the, the good and the evil, the, the, the light and the dark. A concept that's been made very popular, right, by the Star Wars sagas. And yet it's not just in that, right? We see it in every story. I mean, there's, there's again, light and dark, and, and, and it applies to lots of different ways of our life. And, again, even, even to, to the, you know, how you drink your coffee, right? Do you like it light or do you like it dark? Right now, as we see that, right, we have to realize that there, there, there is a dark side to everything. I was listening to a podcast this last week, and one of the guests who was on this podcast, she was talking about just our culture and about their study. She was a lady that works for Barna and has done a lot of surveying and research and all these things. And, and, and one of the things that they were talking about in this interview was, was this, this recent a study in Barna about, about Gen Z and about millennials and about the way they view the church and the way they view missions and, and all these kinds of things. And, and one of the things that she said in that interview that really stood out was we have to realize as the church that there is a dark side to everything. Right? And in fact, many of these younger generations within the church have, 
have seen the dark side of church, which is one of the reasons that they push away from the church, or, or when they say, again, that we've heard this phrase, right, that they don't, that they don't like established religion. Right, because they've seen the dark side of something that can be very good. And yet, even when it comes to missions, right, and even short-term mission trips, right, that, that there are, have been teams from the, the churches have sent with good intentions into cultures that have caused more problems than they've helped. And yet, as we see that, we have to understand and realize, right, that, that there is a dark side to even things that, are supposed to be shrouded in light. As we see this, we see some very different motives between these two men. Peter and Judas, even though they're going down the same road towards darkness, they have very different motives. For Judas, his motive was greed. For Peter, his motive and downfall was pride but they were both listening to the wrong voices. And they are, are both being deceived and living out what Jesus described in John chapter 10. Of how the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Again, we see in that verse, John 10, 10, right, that a move towards Christ is a move towards life to the full. And yet a move towards darkness is a move towards being stolen, killed, and destroyed. And we see both of these disciples moving in the wrong direction. And then we see here in the text, as we read, that, that in this once he's arrested and he's, he's there at, at this house, that, that Jesus gets slapped by one of the officers. And then Jesus says, why are you hitting me? And he kind of calls this out. And, and yet we realize that, that the officer slapping Jesus is an accusation of blasphemy. Which is why Jesus calls him out and says, why are, why are you slapping me? Are, you're calling me out as, as claiming blasphemy. Right? And, and again, and Jesus says, he's like, I've been very open about what I've said. I've made these claims from the very beginning. And yet now is when you decide to call me out. Nothing has changed on Jesus' side, and yet everything has changed on the other side. Jesus continues to claim his innocence and claims that he's only taught truth. Again, it's exactly what he said in verses 20 and 21. When he said, everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where all the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. And so why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Again, realize here that Jesus is once again calling out his disciples. I guess who knows better what Jesus taught than those 12 men? And especially in the fact that two of them have just completely abandoned and deceived him. Again, those that he's calling out. And yet at this point, the story, in the story, the anonymous disciple is not mentioned. And so the only other disciple that's present is Peter. And then we see Peter's demise right, continue in these last verses, in verses 25 through 27. 
And we see as Peter repeats his folly two more times in verses 25 and 27. And in this exchange, not only does Peter deny being a disciple two more times, but he also denies even being in the garden with Jesus. And so when it comes to betrayal, Peter even outdoes Judas. Judas only betrayed him once. And yet, then we see at the end of 27, verse 27, that the rooster crows. And this is a prediction that Jesus made in John 13, verse 38. And if you haven't caught on yet, John 13 is very connected to John 18. Jesus makes lots of claims and predictions at that Last Supper in John 13, and, and we see them coming true and being fulfilled in John 18. Now, there were only two disciples that were named in John 13. Right? And as I mentioned earlier, John 13 is also where John first addresses himself as the disciple Jesus loved. And, and as we see that, the, the same two disciples that were named in John 13 are, are the two that, that completely deny Jesus in John 18. And, and so maybe John had a little extra motivation to not name himself in John 13. Because he didn't want to be lumped in that crowd. And yet, as we see all of this come together, again, the the first name in both chapters was Judas. The second name in both chapters is Peter. As we watch Jesus' promises come true. Now, both Judas and Peter had heard Jesus. They both knew what Jesus had taught. And they are both seeing it play out right in front of them as they continue to mess up. And they both realized, very humbly, I'm sure, that everything Jesus said is going to come true. Everything that Jesus said is going to come true. In fact, I mean, that's that's exactly what Jesus says. I mean, we go back to John 13, right? Again, he tells them, he says, I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you'll believe that I am the Messiah. Notice that I am is capitalized. Again, why did Jesus make these predictions? Why does it all play out the way that it does? Why do we see that? Well, so that we will know, literally without a doubt, right, that everything Jesus says is going to come true. Right, because what else did Jesus say? Jesus says that he's the way, the truth, and life. Right? Jesus says that, that the temple will be torn down, that it, it will, but yet it will be rebuilt in three days. Jesus, Jesus makes a lot of huge, bold claims in the Gospel of John. And every single one of them comes true. Okay, and we see this play out here in, in, in this, the, the events of John 18. And yet Jesus is literally living out the gospel of grace before he even goes to the cross. As these disciples continue to mess up, he predicted their mistakes. But for no other reason than to set them up to be redeemed. 
Right? And we see here again where the, again, the motivation of the enemy, as Jesus taught us earlier in the gospel in John 10, 10, the motivation of the enemy is to steal, kill, and destroy, to separate us from our God. And yet the motivation of Jesus is just as obvious. Right? Because Jesus' motivation is love. Because in that same verse in John 10, 10, Jesus says, but I come to give you life and life to the full. By the way, that's one of the promises of Jesus that absolutely will come true. Right? And as we see that and, and as this plays out, right, we once again, we see Jesus living out in front of his disciples the lessons he has taught them. And then we end up at the concluding verses right, of this gospel. And that is verses 28 through 40. And we're going we're to pick up, again, the concluding verse of this chapter here at verse uh, 28. And this is where now Jesus is now sent over to Pilate. He goes from the religious leaders, and they send him to Pilate. Pilate is a Roman official. He is not a man of faith. But yet he does hold the power to crucify Jesus. And that's why they send him over to Pilate. John 18, verse 28. So Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. And then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them. They wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. And so Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, why is your charge, what is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if, if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told him. Only the Romans are per permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. And this fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way that he would die. And then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked him. And Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. For if it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. And actually I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. And then he went out again to the people and told them he's not guilty of any crime. But you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year to the, at Passover. Would you like me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. And we're going to stop there because that's where the chapter ends, but but the reality is this is only half of the drama with Pilate. Now, next week, we are going to start back right there, and we're going to look at the entire um, interaction between Jesus and Pilate and this whole trial. Okay, so next week, we're going to go back to these verses here in 18 and, and into chapter 19 as we go halfway through 19 and look at that before we end up then at Good Friday. Right, and the last part of 19, we will cover on Good Friday, which is the crucifixion. But I bring it up today as we look at, at this, this first part of this trial with Pilate, because 
Again, this is the culmination of, of what Jesus was leading up to. And also what John in his writing was pointing out here in this chapter. We see here where the, this conversation between Pilate and Jesus culminates in verse 38. Right? Where, where Pilate comes back at Jesus with this very famous line, right? What is truth? And then he went out again to the people and told them he's not guilty of any crime. And, and I don't know if you, if you saw it, but as I read through that, realize, like, again, this is a very abrupt end to this conversation with Pilate. Again, what is it that Jesus said that struck a chord with Pilate? Right? What is it that stood out in his, in his mind and in his heart, right, that, that made sense to Pilate to, to end this conversation that abruptly? Because it feels like that he didn't find any conclusion. And yet, Pilate's actions show something very different. We see here that Pilate makes up his mind that Jesus is innocent. And yet he doesn't release him. Why not? Why did Pilate not do what Pilate knew he needed to do? Well, there was one reason Pilate didn't release Jesus. Because the mob didn't want him to. Right? And, and when we realize this, do we need to understand, again, what Jesus is even showing us through this interaction with Pilate. And that is that we need to know and never forget that popular opinion is not the truth. I mean, that's exactly, that's the conclusion that Pilate came to, isn't it? Right? As Jesus points Pilate to the truth, and he saw the truth. And yet Pilate says back and says, well, but that might be true, but that's not what I have to do. What is truth? Right? And, and as, as we realize that, we have to learn right, that what, what Pilate should have learned. Right? And that is that following the crowd instead of following truth is very, very, very dangerous. Following the crowd instead of following truth is dangerous. And that's exactly what Pilate does. That's the only reason Pilate didn't release Jesus. I mean, he says it. He clearly says it, right? There's, this man is guilty of nothing. And as we see this, this very, very important truth, popular opinion isn't truth. That following the crowd instead of following the truth is very dangerous. Again, Pilate knows that he has painted himself in a corner. And he tries to get out of it right, with this Passover tradition. That's why he walks out and says, you know, that, hey, he's not guilty of anything, but, um, but here's how you can get rid of it, right? He's trying to, to take door number three. Right? Again, his motivation was all about public approval. Right? He knew the truth. And he tried to get out of it by living up 
try to get out of living up to the truth, however he could. Now, this is a venture that will continue next week as we look at this ongoing exchange between Pilate and Jesus and this angry crowd. But this is the point I want to bring us to today. And that is that we realize, as we look at John 18, that every named character in this chapter, other than Jesus, had the same motivation. Selfishness. Every named character in this chapter, other than Jesus, was motivated by their own selfish desires. There was four different men named in this chapter. They all had different motivations. Or it manifested itself different, in different ways, but their true motivation was the same. Again, Judas was motivated by greed. Peter was motivated by pride. Caiaphas was motivated by self-preservation. Pilate was motivated by the approval of others. But the core of all four of these men was selfish, sinful actions. And yet, we see their motivation very distinctly contrasted to the motivation of Jesus. Because what was the motivation of Jesus? Love. Jesus was motivated by love. So much so that he was living out the gospel of grace even on his way to the cross. even when those closest to him betrayed him and abandoned him. Jesus didn't change. And it brings us into this very sobering question. What is your motivation in life? Is it following Jesus and living out the love that he gives us? Or is it something else? Is it manifested out in lots of different things in our lives, but at the end of the day, the motivation of every sin is selfishness. And we see, again, back in John 13, and I said these, these two chapters of Scripture are very closely connected. Right, and in John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, I am now giving you a new commandment to love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Because your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Again, what Jesus predicts in 13, Jesus lives out in 18. He leads by example. Right? As he shows us what it means to love others. Right? And to be motivated by love. And, and he, he told the disciples then that, that your motivation needs to be love. Again, not, not your own love, right? But, but you're motivated by the love that comes from God. We love because he first loved us. Right? And, and the ultimate love that we receive is, is what is the result of the cross and the resurrection, which is our salvation. 
And that's how we join the journey of faith. Right? That's how our motivation gets transformed from selfishness and sin to the love of God is when we are first loved by God and you, you receive that love by praying and accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. And once you become a follower of Jesus and praying that prayer of salvation, you join the journey of faith and then, then we follow the example of Jesus every day after that right, as we move forward in our journey. And as we flesh out what that means to be motivated by love and because it's so different than where life ever was before. Again, I don't know where your faith journey is today, but if you've never received Christ as your Savior, that's how you start. God already loved you. And he wants to save you. And he wants to transform you. And you need to pray and accept, as, as Romans 10.9 tells us, you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And then you are saved. If you've never done that, I, I hope that you will pray and accept Christ today. If you have, this question becomes even more important. What is the motivation of your life? Because how will the world know Jesus? By how we love. It's exactly what Jesus says in John 13. They will know, you will prove to the world that you are my disciples. By how you love. So this brings me to my final thought this morning, and that is this. The light of the world reveals love. The powers of darkness bring out selfishness. So which would you rather live for? Are you going to live for the light? Or are you going to go down the road of darkness? I hope that today you will commit to the light. Right, whether you've going to receive Jesus today for the first time, or whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades, it doesn't change what our daily life should look like. Take a step forward, step towards Jesus today. God, we acknowledge the power in your name. God, we believe, God, that Jesus claimed, and rightfully so, that he was God and you are God. Lord, we thank you. God, that you are an all-powerful God that also loves us more than we can imagine. And God, I pray that as we leave here today, God, that we would truly carry your light, the true light, into this dark world. God, not a fake light. God, not one that we have to fabricate on our own. God, but that our love and that our motivation and that our, our power, God, comes from you. God, help us to take a step forward in our faith this week. God, to be your church, to shine your light. And God, we pray, Lord, that as we enter into this Easter season, God, that you are glorified through all we do. And God, that you take new ground in your kingdom this year. We love you. We praise you. Guide us as we go and as we shine your light this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.